Hi everyone, welcome to Stats with Crayons, a podcast where we talk about statistics, oral health, and everything in between. My name is Alonso Carrasco-Labra from the Center for Integrated Global Oral Health at Penn Dental Medicine. Our guest today is Elizabeth Sweeney, and we will discuss issues related to hypothesis testing. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for joining us today. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Elizabeth. I am a biostatistician. I just started at Penn this year, so I'm a, a new assistant professor at Penn. But before I came to Penn, I was an assistant professor at Wall Cornell Medicine in New York. A lot of my work is with radiology, so I do a lot of imaging type research and those types of things and collaborate quite closely with people in radiology, neurology, and those types of areas. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us today. So as I mentioned, uh, today we're going to talk about hypothesis testing. If you have not seen our video on this topic, I recommend you to check it out. You can find a link in the show description. So Elizabeth, we have briefly discussed about this type of concepts and how you deal with hypothesis testing methods on a daily basis. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I do lots of hypothesis testing with collaborators who I work on projects with. So they'll come to me and they'll say, I have a hypothesis about X, so maybe for an MRI example, I think that this MRI variable is equal to 10 or something. And then we'll gather data together and test the hypothesis. So I, I work very closely with people on formulating a good hypothesis that can be answered with their data. So that's critically important. Sometimes people want to test things and the data doesn't exactly line up with what they want to test. So it's a lot of give and take, a lot of conversation about setting up the appropriate hypothesis that we can answer with data. So probably implementing hypothesis testing methods is not as intuitive as one mm -hmm. would wish they are. So what are the typical misconceptions you encounter when trying to collaborate with clinicians and other researchers around these methods? Yeah, I think the most kind of common misconception, and it's actually very subtle, is if you have a null hypothesis and you aren't able to reject that null hypothesis, it doesn't necessarily make that null hypothesis true. So if you're testing, say, heights in a population and you wanna test, okay, is the average height equal to five foot nine in this population? And you fail to reject that null hypothesis going through the hypothesis testing procedure, it doesn't mean that the average height is equal to five foot nine. It might just mean that you don't have enough data to reject that null hypothesis or something like that. So something I always try to emphasize when I work with people is that a p-value greater than 0.05 doesn't mean that your null hypothesis is true. Yeah, and I've seen that in a way obtaining such a p-value for many researchers is considered a problem because what, what do I say now about my results? Are they undetermined? Or is actually, I'm here committing a type two error or a type one error, and how that is reflected in the conclusions of my study because one of the key goals probably is disseminating the results. We know from empirical evidence that results that are statistical significance tend to be published more easily. Mm -hmm 
and disseminate it more quickly. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's tough because you'll work with somebody and you have this p-value threshold of 0.05. And if something doesn't meet that threshold, what can you say? And sometimes it's not a lot and then can be very disappointing. So I think just because you don't reject your null hypothesis, you can't just say, oh, well, then it's true and yeah, it's like true. move yeah. forward. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a typical misconception we can find in, in articles that are actually published in the literature mm -hmm. that they, they make this assumption of equivalence between yeah. two interventions, for example, when in reality such a conclusion cannot be drawn exactly. from the data observed. Yeah, and there's actually a branch of statistics called equivalence testing. And if you want to show that something is equivalent to something else, there's special tests that you can use for that. But interestingly, it requires a lot more sample size. So I set up a lot of studies with people before, you know, before they collect the data and we do something called sample sizing where we determine, you know, how many samples do we need to perform this study and get statistically valid results. And a lot of times somebody will say, I want to show these two things are equivalent. I'll say, oh, <laughs> I don't know if you want to collect that much yeah. data. This is going to be quite a bit to show that. So it's a, a very nuanced topic and just like how hypothesis tests are set up and what they can show and, and those types of things. So can you give us an example of this concept apply on your day-to-day -day, uh, activities or a research, recent research project that you have uh, conducted? A hypothesis test that I did recently, there were two groups of multiple sclerosis lesions in the brain. So we used MRI to determine that there are two different groups of these lesions. And we wanted to know, are the properties of these lesions different? And one of the properties that we wanted to learn about was demyelination, so damage to the myelin sheath in the brain. And we have a special type of imaging that measures that. So what we did is we collected lesions from patients and we grouped them into these two groups. And then we did a hypothesis test. Does the myelin damage in one group equal the myelin damage in another group? And that was our null hypothesis, that they are equal. We were able to reject that null hypothesis, and we saw more myelin damage in these more severe uh, lesions. We did some statistical testing. It's a little more uh, complicated because patients have multiple lesions in their brain, and we have to do some adjustments. But the concept remains the same. We set up our null hypothesis. Are these two groups different? We saw our data, we ran a statistical test, we were able to reject that null hypothesis and say these are indeed different. So let's try to bring these concepts now to something that we can relate on our day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Where can we see this type of concept reflected as in, in the general population, in our day-to-day -day life? So an interesting hypothesis testing example that kind of comes in our everyday life would be perhaps the number of chips in a bag. And so there's been some talk about with uh, recent inflation that there has been a reduction of the number of snacks in a bag that you uh, receive. So you could think about, okay, if I had data on how many chips are in a bag pre-inflation, so I've been eating chips, I've been counting the number of chips in the bag before inflation, I have a number of samples of different bags of this same type of potato chip. And then post-inflation, I do the same thing. So I eat potato chips and I determine the number of chips in the bag. 
And so I can take, okay, the average number before and the average number after, a measure of variability of how much variability there is in the number of the average number of chips in the bag and perform a hypothesis test and either conclude, yes, there is indeed a difference or I could fail to reject the null. I can't say there's no difference, but I don't have sufficient data to tell. One thing I wanted to highlight here is that I need multiple observations of how many chips are in a bag. If I just get a bag of chips pre-inflation and I say there are 20 chips in this bag, and I get one post-inflation, I say there's 15 chips in this bag, I can't really say there's a difference. I need multiple observations to describe the variability in the sample. So another question I have is why researchers and clinicians should care about this concept? Yeah, I think it's a critically important concept because we'd like to make statements about the world. So we'd like to say, if I go back to my lesion example, we'd like to say there's a difference in the myelination of these two groups. And, you know, you can observe things and you can say, well, I, I feel like there's a difference or it appears there's a difference. But to do this in a rigorous framework where you can say, yes, using these statistical methods, I see a statistically significant difference between these things um, is a, a really powerful concept. Otherwise, we're just kind of going by our gut or, you know, it, it looks like they're different and things can be really deceiving. There was this study that was done that showed two different variables plotted against each other. So you can think like height and weight. And they asked people, is this data significantly correlated? So does it, you know, when you have larger height, do you have larger weight, smaller height, smaller weight? That would be a, a positive correlation between those two variables. But they just asked people, look at this data and say, is that a correlation, a statistically significant correlation? People are not able to visually do these things. And then things are just influenced by, you know, what you want to be true and those types of things. So having a rigorous framework for this is critically important. Those are all the questions we have for today. We hope to have you in our podcast soon. Again, thank you very much, Elizabeth, for being with us. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. For more bite-sized conversations about statistics and healthcare, check out our other episodes on Apple Music and Spotify. Companion videos to our podcast can be found on our website or on our YouTube channel. Link to these can be found in the episode description. Find us on social media. We would love to hear from you. See you next time at Stats with Crayons.